Okay, last week, we really focused on verse 14. Above all, this is Colossians 3, 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I spent the bulk of our time trying to illuminate the difference between the biblical, what I think is a biblical definition of love, and the cultural kind of idea of love or surrounding love. And what I've done, because I will use human laziness to my benefit any time I can, what I've done is I've taken the lack of any objection from any of you to the definition that I proffered last week as agreement. Um, you all uh, were so moved by the definition of love that I offered that you've thought about nearly almost nothing else all week long and marveled that you have such a gifted teacher, which I appreciate sincerely. All right. <laughs> Here's what we agreed. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do someone else good at your own expense. Um, it's, it's easier to remember that if you, if you realize that it's suggesting four things, right? First, <clears throat> love is not generally involuntary. Uh, that, I mean, we're already uh, cross-grained with the culture, right? Um, we fell out of love, and so we're getting divorced. That's stupid. That love has nothing to do with that. You don't fall out of an act of the will. You decide not to want to do it anymore. Right. Number two, uh, it's not all emotion, being that it is action. However, it's not devoid of emotion because emotions are woven inseparably into an act of love. You can't really do an act of love without your heart being engaged. Let me, <laughs> let me offer you a caveat. You can begin to do an act of love and your heart not really be in it. But by the time you're done, your heart will be in it. That's probably more accurate. Sometimes the heart trails behind, right? <clears throat> you know what the right thing is to do and you sort about doing it. And by the time you're through it, you're like, man, I'm glad I did that. All right. Uh, three, the design of any loving action is the blessing and benefit of the recipient. So... Uh, when I promise to love my wife, what I'm promising to do is things for the rest of my mortal life which benefit her. Every expression of my love ought to be accounted for by her being blessed or helped. Right? Uh, and finally, love will cost you something while it may gain you nothing in this life. So you have to be prepared to do these things uh, to demonstrate your love for the target, expecting nothing in return. Come on, don't, don't get pensive on me now. We already agreed to all this, remember? In order to prove that my definition is biblical, last week I invited us to the cross where I think Christians would generally agree the greatest act of love ever occurred. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me just also, for those of you who don't know this, um, if you've been convinced by the agnostic, atheistic, mm, cerebral kind of intellectuals who say that 
this whole Jesus thing is a myth. Uh, you, you need to understand that nobody who really knows and studies history believes that Jesus did not actually exist. Nobody that really understands and studies history believes that Jesus was not actually crucified at the hands of the government and the leading people among the Jews. That's not up for debate. That happened. What we believe as Christians is that that, that happened because God wanted and Jesus wanted to display the affection of the creator towards the creatures in spite of their sin, which meant that sin had to be dealt with. And the way that sin is dealt with is something has to die. Someone has to die. That's the wages of sin. So most Christians would agree that the cross is where the greatest act of love ever in human history occurred. Most Christians would agree that the cross is where the greatest act of love that ever occurred in human history occurred. Yes. Oh, there we go. So with our definition in hand, what we can do, does everybody remember the definition? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. What we can do once you have that definition in hand is you can look at the imperative of Colossians 3.14, which is to put on love as the outer garment of the Christian's new clothes and contemplate what it means to do that. So I suggested last Sunday that perhaps Part of what it means to put on love, above all things put on love, part of what it means is when the Holy Spirit brings somebody to mind, as we all know, he often does, you're going along minding your own business and all of a sudden some person that you know and care for pops into your brain. Maybe an expression of our understanding of love would be that when they come to mind, we do something that's, that, that would be defined as actually loving that person. So engage in some act of the will accompanied with some emotion designed to do whoever that is that just popped into your head some good at your own expense. And what I said last week was, I hope for your sake it's somebody that you like because it's much easier that way, right? Well, how did we do? How'd that go? <laughs> Don't worry. I imagine a few of us forgot by the time we got home on Sunday. So I'm going to reissue the challenge with an added clarification. <clears throat> Which chair is it? Maybe we could abandon it. Is it yours, Jude? That's... <laughs> Is that better? Wiggle. Oh, they all do it. Okay. Well, we'll just have to endeavor to persevere, right? <clears throat> Our text suggests that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Did you all catch that? Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Oh, that's exactly what I just said. Um, this might not be a fair question because we have some visitors in our midst, but I'll ask it anyway. And if you could just play along, if you're a visitor, the rest of us would appreciate it. Would all of us like to see this church continue to grow 
to impact our neighbors, friends, and the community at large? All right. And we're making headway, right? We're, we're pecking away in one sense. Uh, it's remarkable that we're doing as well as we are because we all came here with various types of baggage. And if you're sitting there going, well, I didn't. You're the one we all think probably came with the most baggage. <laughs> the community, when we planted Springfield Baptist, the community already had an opinion of this church because it had kind of existed for about 10 years before that in various forms and uh, wasn't always the greatest. At least that's the report that I've heard from those of you who, who were here doing that. The community already had opinions about many of us individually when we planted here and already had opinions about church in general. Um, and part of the opinion that the community already had about church in general flows from the fact that the church for the last 50 or 60 years, actually, I got to stop doing that because it's 2023 and I got to get all the way back to 1950. I'm sorry. 70 years, <clears throat> the church has been laboring, uh, by and large, to let the world know how we're not any different than them. So the, the opinion of our culture of the church is that, like, what is the point in your existence? So here we are. We plant in two years. What have we seen happen? Well, we've seen dozens of churchless Christians find a place to land. That's a fact. We've seen the gospel call, like fling open the door for the Holy Spirit to start chipping away at bad habits. And I have to be so vague because we're so small. If I get specific, everybody will have somebody in mind, right? Um, whoever you're thinking of, that's who I'm thinking of too. There. We've seen men and women and children start opening their Bibles and studying and understanding what's in there. And then we've seen them being changed by what's in there. In two years, we've seen this happen. We've seen discipling unfolding organically, <clears throat> which is in part, that's just relationships being formed and springing up and then slowly taking deep root over time. We've watched this happen. People who didn't know each other now know each other. People that didn't even care for one another maybe in the previous 20 years now all of a sudden care for one another. Um, we've seen people praying and God answering. I'm not going to get all spooky and charismatic on you, but we've seen cancer eradicated. <laughs> we've seen sons and daughters coming to faith in Christ. And if I was going to work in order from lesser to greater, I would say cancer being eradicated is down here. My children coming to know Jesus is up here. And we've seen it happen. A, a, a lot of you, we'll, we'll see proof of it today at the baptisms, right? There'll be some kids going through that water that we, were, we weren't sure they were going to make it to the age that they are. We've installed three deacons in this church, which is a lot for a church of around 70, but it's good. They serve us week to week 
Uh, and here's how I can prove it to you, and you don't want me to do this, but I could ask them to take a Sunday off, and you would all show up and be like, wait, where's... And there'd be an endless list of things that you would be used to having for yourself that aren't there. Well, not endless. That was hyperbolic. There'd be a number of things that you would be missing. We've seen our community blessed by us just showing up and participating in events. Bet me. I mean, don't, because I think some of you think gambling's a sin, and it probably is. I haven't really researched that. But if you look at what happens when we're not there versus what happens when we show up in force, it's a blessing. And we bring this temperance and prudence, kindness, concern with us when we go. We, we had a Sunday worship service in the middle of the lawn downtown, and our church made up maybe maybe a third of that congregation. And all those people heard the gospel. Whether they listened or not, they heard it. We spent two years plugging away, and we've made our way through. We did, initially, we did a series that I called, um, oh, what was it, Murals of Mercy. We did a series after that. It was, that was just the gospel. Remember, we did uh, what, 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 is the, what is the gospel, it's the good news, that whole thing, the T-I-O-N words, all that. And then we transitioned into what is the church, the dearest place on earth, and did a little series on that. And then we went reformed since then. So we, well, okay, Advent, and then we went reformed. So Haggai, followed by Galatians, followed by James, and now we're most of the way, believe it or not, because chapter 4 is really a lot of, say hi to Frank and Betty, we're most of the way through Colossians. I wonder if God in Haggai, Galatians, James, and Colossians hasn't done substantial work in our hearts. I bet he has. If we could stop and go back and look at the old self that we were before and then come fast forward and look at the self that we are now, we'd be like, the Lord is amazing and faithful and uses his word to change. We have uh, worshipped God together now, today, over 100 times. I mean, unless this is your first time here. You still get credit, though. It's fine. We've been in one another's homes. We've prayed together. We have laughed together. We've wept together and sang together. All right, now here's the question. How many fights have we seen? How many squabbles? How many times have the elders had to organize a meeting and spend time reconciling members? Unless I wasn't invited, the number is zero. And do we think that's because the devil hasn't been trying? I assure you, he has been. I've heard from some of you, and some of you have heard this from me, there have been moments where we've been frustrated, right? I don't want to meet in the high school. I do. I love the high school. I I want to do baptisms in January. Why do we always have to go to the farm? I love doing baptisms at the farm. Uh, Lord's Supper should be done together. The deacons should pass out. The elements and everybody should do it together. That's biblical. I love the way we do Lord's Supper as family units. It gets all there, right? Uh, the preaching's bad. The preaching's life-changing. We disagree about stuff. 
something, I think, about the drumbeat of love, which has been sounding... Obviously, the pulpit is the loudest place that it happens from, but I would say from the five men who lead here. And more importantly, the subtle insistence of each member here, the commitment of all of us to do what the Bible actually says instead of fighting. I have literally watched most of us at some point in two years repeatedly lay down our preferences, lay down our hurt feelings, lay down our pride for the sake of the church because love binds everything together in perfect unity, in perfection. I believe this with my whole heart. I said earlier we can look at the imperative of Colossians 3.14, but here's where I would say Colossians 3.14 is also a promise. Put on love, and it'll bind everything together. If we love one another as Christ loved us, ministries will spring up. Listen, here's a sound. Here's a a tweet for you or an Instagram post. When you want to appear spiritual to all your friends, say this. You don't even have to quote me. You can just say you came up with it. Ministries spring up from churches filled with love, not churches filled with money. You could say this. Cultural impact happens when churches are filled with love, not because the preacher is so gifted. There's plenty of gifted preachers out there whose churches are doing next to nothing. And that's not me being like, it's fine that I'm not gifted. That's me saying, if this place is filled with love, we will have an impact on the culture. And you'll probably get a good preacher too. If you don't believe me, look at Revelation chapter 2. Some of you don't have to because you remember how it starts. The angel of the church in Ephesus to them write, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's make some charts and figure out what that means. Or we just pay attention to the text, right? I know your works. This is God talking to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. That's a great report. If God were to write Springfield Baptist Church a letter and that's how it opened, we would be like, our tails would be wagging. We would be very excited. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. All right, so you've got a church that's nailing it from a Reformed Baptist perspective doctrinally sound, won't tolerate evil, spies out false teachers and makes sure that they are removed, and yet God has something against them. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That's what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Uh, the most abused passage of scripture in maybe the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, gets read at every wedding and not the design of the passage. Oh, it's got the word love in it 14 times, so I'll have it at my wedding. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? 
He's saying if you have all these gifts and all these graces and all these accoutrements and all these relationship programs and all these therapy sessions and all these fill-in-the-blank and your checking account's full and your car's not broken and the water heater works and the AC's running, but you don't have love, you are impoverished beyond your ability to conceive. Above these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. One of the most interesting things to me about the letter to the church in Ephesians from Paul, not the one in Revelation 2, but the one that Paul writes, is it's the, I think, it's the only epistle where there isn't some glaring issue that has to be addressed. He just writes to them about the gospel and the church and the family. Kind of a really nice letter to study because you don't feel like, oof, that was going on? Yikes. It's not in there. But, but then you come to the Isle of Patmos when John receives his vision and things have changed in Ephesus. They're all about personal holiness. They know the difference between good teachers and bad ones. They know the difference between a good preacher who deals with the text and this fluff that James does I don't actually think that, by the way. Uh, oh, they put up with lots of abuse from the government. According to Jesus, writing to the church, yeah, you're born with all this abuse. They didn't tolerate wickedness ever, but you take out love and you no longer have a church. You have a seminary at best or a cult at worst. You got to have love. So how will we know if this is happening? I mean, if you think about where we've been in Colossians 3, you could just say probably like compassionate hearts will be missing. If love is being taken out, you're gonna, there's, where's compassion? Kindness probably starts to disappear. I'm guessing humility is probably absent. Meekness is going to be hard to find. Patience likewise won't be seen. I'd bet people don't bear with one another, but rather come and complain to the pastor every time they have a problem with each other or their friends. I imagine we'll start segregating ourselves by external characteristics. I'm a Greek, I'm a Jew, I'm a barbarian, I'm a Scythian. Because you can't put a beautiful coat of love over a shirt riddled with moth-eaten holes of selfishness and thoughtlessness and pants tattered by bitterness and unforgiving wrath and then look well-dressed. It doesn't work. All of these things are also bound together by love. Compassionate hearts, kindness, patience, meekness, humility, gentleness, thoughtfulness, self-control. It's almost like God wants to make sure we get this. I want to see us bound together in perfect harmony, but it's going to take effort, right? It's going to take real effort when you don't get your way, you kind of need to know in advance how you're going to deal with that. Because if you just, well, let's wait and find out how I deal with it, that won't be good. It might be. You might get fortunate. But for the most part, what's in you that comes out when you get squeezed is what you've been working on. Ugh. I hate to say that. I told Lisa the first thing that happened to me this morning. <laughs> We've got this... GMO dog. She gets, she gets very depressed at night when we go to bed, and she's. I get to experience every morning because I'm the first one up. Her exuberance and happiness over now being up. So she's a part golden retriever, so she does that smiling thing that they do. 
and she talks to me. And so after we got through the greeting period of the morning and she went outside, I went over and put in my contacts and put my coffee together and went back and let the dog back in. And then I went over to turn off the light above the fridge and stepped in. I don't know which child left it there, but it was three or four ice cubes that had melted on the floor together. Now, those of you who wear cotton socks around the house in the morning will understand where what came out of me came from. But it was, other than talking to the dog, the first words out of my mouth this morning. And I was like, ah, that's in me. Well, that's what's going to come out of you if you don't, like, do some work and kind of prepare yourself for when you don't get your way, when you get ignored, when your feelings get hurt. Can you manage a compassionate heart? Can you return kindness when you haven't been shown enough? Can you practice humility, meekness, and patience when people are arrogant, snippy, and rude? It won't just happen. you got to work at it. Can you bear with us when we let you down? All right, so why might those things be difficult for us? I think this is a big part of why 15 is here, to answer that question. So look at verse 15, Colossians 3, 15. Oh, grumpy baby. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I'm not going to ask a bunch of questions. I'm not going to give you a bunch of illustrations. I'm just going to say it outright, and you're going to agree with me. Our culture doesn't do peace. The word here means peace, quietness, rest. The word here means peace, quietness, rest. We don't do that. We do warfare, noise, and busy. And I'm not sure how much benefit there would be to me listing all the different ways that this is true. And I'm sure I will, I'll, you know, I can't resist. I'll end up touching on some. But let me ask you a few questions. To those of you who use it, what's the most encouraging thing you saw or read on social media this week? To those of you who are older, I don't know what the threshold is, but you know who you are. You have your favorite news channel, which is like 40 years ago. Could you imagine having a favorite news channel 40 years ago? Now you've got your favorite, the one that says, that's right, that's, that's the truth. What they said is right. What is the most encouraging thing you saw on that news channel this week? How did your favorite politician or political pundit encourage your heart this week? How did they really strengthen you to the task at hand? Of all the beautiful, joyous moments that happened every day at work or at school, what happened there that filled you with the most joy? At work or school? Where was the, when did your heart overflow the most at work this week? with joy. Don't leave. I'm not done. <laughs> Which of your kids' sporting events gave you the deepest sense of satisfaction? Yeah. 
you know, that kind that like permeates your whole soul and just lifts you even when other things are going wrong. Which of your kids' sporting events did that for you this week? Which website of the ones you frequent left you feeling most refreshed and invigorated? What TV show, movie, TikTok, Instagram, Rumble, or YouTube video most settled your heart? Which household task created the most contentedness? <laughs> How much time did we spend talking about spiritual things with the people in our lives? How much worshiping did you do this week between last Sunday and today? And this is not, I'm not, this isn't supposed to be like, oh, no, I feel bad. No, it's not what we're doing here. I'm illustrating by contrast the reality of our culture. Okay, this is not me picking on you. What do you remember from your Bible reading this week? If, assuming you did any, did you take any time to sit and contemplate? Did you put away the iPad, the TV remote, or the computer at any point, or the phone? Or do you just fill your mind and heart with whatever's coming out of the glowing screen? Rest, peace, quietness, absolutely, in our world, like love, must be intentional. You, teenagers, according, if, if studies are to be believed, and I think that they are because I have a lot of anecdotal evidence, I've had a lot of conversations with you, you're, you're riddled with anxiety. In fact, it's dipping down to younger and younger and younger people. This anxiety disorder uh, pandemic among young people. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with social media and the internet. I don't know. Didn't used to be this way, and now it is. I don't know. We'll have to do some studies and find out. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with your teachers, your parents possibly, uh, everybody on the TV, everybody in all the movies that you watch and enjoy, all of the actors, all of the singers, all of the gyrating you know, musicians, all of them constantly telling you that the earth is five seconds from being a fiery inferno because of carbon dioxide emissions. I don't know. That might have something to do with your anxiety and the fact that at the age of 13, people can literally fly on their private planes and go do a concert where they talk about the dangers of global warming and how you need to be doing more. That might have something to do with it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that we don't really, generally speaking, know how to teach the generation that comes after us. And yet we have continued for the last hundred years to test in the same way while we have adopted every teaching method under the sun. I don't know. That might cause some anxiety in you when you just always feel like you don't quite know what you're supposed to know. Maybe it's the fact that you go literally in one day from having to raise your hand and ask to go to the bathroom to the next day being responsible for your own well-being and supposedly now able to make decisions about going hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt in an instant 
because that's just what society expects of you. That might create some anxiety in you looking ahead to that future. I don't know. I know this, we're finite. We can only take so much. We can only do so much. We can only experience so much. And it used to be that men and women got to around 35 to 45 and then melted down and had this internal you know, episode of absolute frustration over I'm not everything I thought I would be by now and I think I've run out of time to be that. Now they do it when they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. This is what our culture is producing. Anxiety at levels previously unheard of among people who have nothing, relatively speaking, to worry about other than Make sure you study and get good grades. Be nice to your friends. What happened? There are sexually active teenagers in my daughter's middle school in seventh grade, like last year. Prior to that, fifth and sixth grade, they were deciding what gender they are. Fifth graders. Maybe I'm a boy. Maybe I'm a girl. It used to be when we were struggling with identity as as young people, what we were struggling with was a little bit more finite than that, right? Like, I thought I was going to be a great basketball player, so I worked, like, pretty hard at it up until halfway through eighth grade when I was like, oh, they've all continued to grow and I've stopped. Those were the kinds of struggles we had. But now we've, we've plunged our young people into a culture that doesn't even know that there's only male or female. And that you know, based on a physical examination, which one you are. We don't do peace, rest, and quiet. We do warfare, noise, and busyness. It has to be intentional if we're going to have rest. Because we can only take so much and we can only do so much and we can only experience so much. In Luke 5, 15, it says, The report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered together to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus understood the limitations of his human frame and nature. We usually don't. And to prove that we don't, the majority of you already knew everything I've just pointed out. I have not said anything that hasn't already occurred to all of you. What I've just communicated is not revelatory. It's not new. It's not like I thought of this and nobody else has said it. What it is is the truth. Everybody knows that it's the truth. Things have changed and not for the better, right? You already knew it and haven't done anything to adjust in the way of giving yourself time for peace, rest, quiet. The more chaotic the culture around you gets, wouldn't it make sense the more rest, the more peace, the more quiet we might need? As as the world around us devolves into utter chaos and depravity, doesn't it make sense that we might need that much more time to buttress our souls against the onslaught? But what do we do? You get five spare minutes and the phone's in your hand. Put something on Netflix. Fill the space. I don't want to do quiet. I don't want to do peace. I don't want to do rest. We just keep going until we can't which looks a few different ways. Some of us snap, 
We decompress violently, create heartache and confusion in those who have the misfortune of being in proximity. Thankfully, when I stepped in Sam, I think it was Sam's ice puddle this morning, nobody was around for my violent decompression, but that's usually how I do it. Some of us withdraw, right? We aren't resting, though. We're just like waiting to see how long it takes somebody to notice that we're sulking. Some of us collapse. So illness or injury will force an end to your plans, but you still won't rest because your mind will be consumed with wondering if you'll be replaced while you're not there to do everything for everyone. So even then, you don't rest. Some of us reorganize. Like, we do this spastic modification to our priorities, our relationships, our schedules, or our living spaces because something needs to change, but we don't rest. So now we've looked at all the ways we don't do this. I wonder if we can change the script going forward. There's three things I would point out. Look at verse uh, 15 again. We're almost done. Three things I would point out. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Here are the three things. And I'll go over them a couple of times here. But first, this this isn't our peace. Second, it is not a servant to us. Third, it isn't in our circumstances. So first, it isn't our peace. This peace belongs to Jesus. So guess where you're going to find it? Let the peace of who? It's the peace of Christ. It's not yours. It doesn't say manufacture your peace. It says let the peace of Christ. So if it's his, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26, 3 says, coffee cup verse, right? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Well, that's life-changing. That's life-changing. If you have an anxiety disorder, and I just said, God keeps those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. I've cured your anxiety. You're welcome. But it's got to be intentional. I'll get to that in a minute. Relax. I'll tell you what I mean. Second, it's not a servant. You do not get to beckon, call peace whenever you feel like you want it. It is to rule in your heart. It's the king. It's the umpire. It's to govern and prevail. The peace of Christ is to decide, determine, direct. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Well, I want to look at things on the internet that are corrupting my soul and ruining my brain. And you wonder why you've got an anxiety disorder. I'll give you a choice. You can take some medication and continue to sin and have no idea what the consequences of taking that medication in 10, 12, 15, 20 years are. Or 
You can let the peace which belongs to Christ govern your heart by being obedient to how he has commanded and prescribed that we live. The law of God is a guide to the Christian. It's not a miserly, threatening taskmaster, taskmaster d- demanding that you, that you perform in perfect fealty. It's God saying, listen to me. I know what makes for human flourishing. Do this and you will live. No, I'll just do pharmaceuticals. It doesn't work. The law of God is to guide the Christian, I would say specifically, out of chaos, strife, pandemonium, into rest. So peace flows from Christ's person and must rule in our hearts, which suggests resignation and obedience. Amen? Third, it isn't your circumstances. It's in your heart. It's in the middle of your person. So John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you. I've said these things to you. This is Jesus talking. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble and tribulation. Period. Absolutely true. Both things at the same time. Jesus has said this to you, whoever you are. Like, can I just imagine I'm saying your name. I've said this to you, fill in the blank with your name, that you, fill in the blank with your name, might have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble and tribulation. And then he says, yeah, but take care. I've overcome the world. Yeah, so you go to Jesus, the fountainhead of peace. You allow that peace to rule in your heart rather than subduing it with the pursuit of evil and the pleasures of the flesh. And you will find, in spite of the circumstances of your life, You'll have peace. One last point. Or do I need to, do you want me to go over those again? I'll go over them again. So first of all, it's, it's not your peace. It's Christ's peace. So you'll find it in Christ. Second, it's not a servant. It's, it doesn't exist at your beck and call. It, it must rule. It must govern. It must direct in your life. And then third, it's not circumstances. It's in your middle person. It's in your heart. That's where it's supposed to rule. So while fiery trials and chaos surround you, you can have this peace because your mind is stayed on the Son of God. One last point. I said earlier, rest, peace, quiet. These things have to be intentional because our culture doesn't leave space for peace. So here's my challenge to us for this week. And I realize I've already issued the love challenge from the week before I, I reissued it, right? Where somebody comes to mind, you're supposed to do. All right, so here's another one for this week. Once per day, stop doing the thing you always do. Just once per day, all right? Uh, I would suggest putting a reminder in your phone at noon. For 30 seconds, when you get this reminder, for 30 seconds, Uh, Whatever you're doing, stop. I don't care if it's knitting. You can be like, I'm barely doing anything. Stop. I'm on a walk. Stop. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, stop for 30 seconds. You won't look weird until you've been there for more than 30 seconds. So you'll be okay. Stop for 30 seconds. and, 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 And if you're already resting, if you're just sitting on the couch, stop. Whatever you're thinking about, stop. And for 30 seconds, What did I read in my Bible last night or this morning? Ask yourself that question. And you're like, oh, he's tricked us. We're 
also have to read our Bibles last night or in the morning. Yeah. You agreed to that without realizing it, right? And this is why I think it's important. If you go read, we don't have time to do it, but if you go read uh, 1 Kings 19, there's this incredible moment where um, Elijah overcomes the prophets of Baal. Famous story. Probably everybody knows it. Their prophets of Baal are trying to light the, their sacrifice on fire and they're dancing around and cutting themselves and acting like maniacs. And, uh, and, and nothing happens. And Elijah's mocking them. And he's like, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe you should be louder. And so they dance around louder and cut themselves. And then it's his time for to, to get his altar lit on fire. He has them dump gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water on the wood. And then he prays and the thing ignites and the fire of God consumes the sacrifice. If you could do that, wouldn't you feel like pretty self-assured that God is on your side? If you pray and the sacrifice that's soaked in water lights like it's nothing. Well, within a couple of days, Elijah's hiding in a cave, fleeing for his life, convinced that nobody loves him and God doesn't care. <clears throat> and so the Lord says to him, uh, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, before Elijah could move a muscle, the Lord passed by. And there was a great strong wind that tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of, of the cave. And behold, there a voice came to him. God is speaking to you. And sometimes, like Elijah in the cleft of the rock, God is not in the hurricane. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the inferno. He's in the quiet whisper. And you must learn to stop. Just stop for 30 seconds and go, what was the Lord trying to tell me with that word that I read? Elijah came to the cave after defeating prophets of Baal and one of the most breathtaking displays of power in all of scripture. So you might argue with me, right? And say, because men who preach have done this and, and they're wrong and shame on them for saying stuff like this. But they'll say, well, I'm, it's not my power that I'm relying on. I'm relying on the power of God to do these mighty works. Well, so was Elijah and so was Moses and so was Naomi and so was all of the sons of Jacob and so was Abraham and so was David and so was Jeremiah who wept and so was Paul and so was I and God just told you to let the presence and peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So put a reminder in your phone once per day. Stop the thing you're always doing. Just, just once per day. Stop. Whatever it is, stop. And think for 30 seconds, what did I read in my Bible last night or this morning? Or what am I praying for today? 30 seconds, okay? It's doable, right? And you see, you see, if 30 seconds doesn't turn into five minutes over the course of time, five minutes doesn't turn into an hour here or there. If an hour doesn't turn into one day in seven where we actually rest, from the chaos and the pandemonium of our culture. And we do that as a church. 
wrapped in love, compassionate hearts, I bet we'll start to have an impact. Amen? All right, let's pray.